0: 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem. Incredible destruction if Josephus' figures are correct. Three years, three and a half years before this siege, Rome's rule had been to many an abomination, and so they revolted, especially the Sicari. They revolted and caused the Romans to force a siege force, the Jews to come under their leadership once again. And eventually, three and a half years, it culminated on the siege of Jerusalem that Jesus predicted in Scripture on at least two occasions— One occasion, and it was on Palm Sunday, in which his donkey is now taking him down the Mount of Olives. He's looking across the Kidron Valley, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you knew today what would bring you peace, but it is hidden from your eyes. And he predicts this punishment for rejecting that peace, which he, of course, being the prince or the king of peace, they had rejected and unfortunately, what they did was they took, they, they allowed, on in 70 AD, during Passover, they allowed as many people to go into the city, but did not let them come out. Josephus says that there was 1.1 million people in the city at this time. People have looked at it and said, there's just no way you can fit that many people in Jerusalem. So, you know, was it surrounding Jerusalem? We, we don't know, but... Josephus was fairly accurate, generally, in what he had to say. He, he says that 97,000 were enslaved. 700 of them were paraded through Rome. 40,000 survived, aside from the 97,000 enslaved. I heard... Uh, that there were 30,000 that were crucified. So you do the math, 1.1 million, 1797 enslaved, 40,000 extra just survived in the city. Everyone else died. Everyone else. That's a lot. That's a lot. Unfortunately, what happened is when all these people convened on Jerusalem and were not allowed allowed out, the Romans cut off the food supply. The people starved to death. They began to experience or practice cannibalism, atrocities. You would think there's no way this respectable person would do this, and yet they did. It was horrific. The city was burned. The Jews, especially the Sikari that were holding out, said there's no way we are going to give up Jerusalem. There's no way we are going to allow them to desecrate the temple. So the story unfolds that the Jews, the Sicarii themselves, burned the temple. That they did that. So... Unfortunately, what happened is the gold plating all in the temple, remember there's cedar wood carved and then gold plating hammered over that all inside. It all melted into the stones. When the Romans came, they knocked all the walls down, dug up all of the stones in the foundation in order to get to that gold. Not one stone remained on another. Jesus predicts it this way. In Matthew 24, starting with verse 15, he says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. The reader of Daniel, that is. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And that is exactly what happened, by the way. Some, the sikari fled to... Um, Uh, Pela, the others fled across to the east side of the Jordan into the desert and they lived there. And it says that let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. Sabbath. For then there will be great distress. The Greek word there is, then there will be the great tribulation. Unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. In those days, had it not been cut short, had they not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. This is a prediction that Jesus gives. It was fulfilled in 70 AD what many suggest is that not only was this fulfilled in 70 AD but as some prophecies in the Old Testament it will be fulfilled again and i want to ask that question it will this be fulfilled again we're going to come back to this passage but Is there going to be an abomination of desolation? This would mean that the temple in Jerusalem would need to be rebuilt. Have you heard this before? And so what we're all doing is we're kind of watching for many means to keep watching to see if the temple of Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Is that going to happen? Some of these things they say are going to be fulfilled in the end times. There's a dual prophecy. For example, when you look at Isaiah 7-4, it talks about a virgin will, be, will give birth to a child. But that prophecy was specific to Isaiah's wife or wife-to-be and that she gave birth. And the rest of the prophecy does not uh, refer to Jesus. But that portion does. So it's very legitimate to say, hey, it w- there was a dual fulfillment and it happened. It was fulfilled in Isaiah's wife, but it was also fulfilled in Jesus himself being born through, through the Virgin Mary. This Greek word, by the, this Hebrew word, by the way, Alma, translated virgin, can also mean young woman who's married. And so consequently, we would say that verse 14 had a future fulfillment, but verse 15 on, that was specific to that situation. So people look at this and say there's going to be a dual fulfillment. I want to ask that question. Is there going to be? Because this sets us up for what is this great tribulation supposed to look at and that phrase the great tribulation is found here so what I want to do is I want to go back to Revelation 7 then come back to this later with this idea that 70 AD is in Jesus' mind does he have anything else in mind as he's predicting this so let's turn there if you would Revelation chapter 7 I'm going to read again from verses uh, a few verses here starting with verse 9 Revelation 7 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, excuse me, every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Skipping down, verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, he's speaking to John, of course. These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. (laughs) What are you asking me for, right? (laughs) You know. And he said, These are they who come out of the great tribulation." They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We read the rest of it last week. But in review, as we looked at the 144,000, can I suggest that these are not Jewish end-time evangelists? People suggest that because they assume that those who come out of the Great Tribulation... That must be the seven-year tribulation that happens at the end of the age, and the 144,000 precede them because they feel as if this is chronological. We've discovered Revelation is not laid out chronologically. There's so many different rewinds, and chapter 6, excuse me, seal 6, and this is between the opening of seal 6 and 7, seal 6 ended with the end of the world. So what is this? This is a rewind. We don't know where it is. We don't know it's at the end of the age. They assume it because now the seven trumpets are more judgments. And we assume they are apocalyptic judgments. But nowhere does it say this, that they're apocalyptic. Nowhere does it say they happen at the end of the age. So we're going to get there. We're not going to look at that today, those um, the, those seven trumpets. But there's just some assumptions, I think, that we've we, we read in books and we just assume ourselves there's a pastor or an expert teaching this and therefore it must be true I'm just going to I'm just going to say let's be fair with the text we discovered actually that the 144,000 were called the first fruits of God see if they're end times evangelists we would be obligated to call them what last fruits right but these are first fruits they are Jewish they're not Gentile there's too, much, there's too much that would lead us in that direction. They're Jewish. They're not Gentile. They are the early church. We discovered in Revelation 14 that they had a unique song. Nobody else could learn. I mean, how could people not learn this new song? Because it was their personal testimony, never to be repeated. I cannot experience with the early church. See, they were the ones who sat under Jesus' teaching. They were the ones that saw Jesus do miracles. And if they didn't, and they were second-generation Christians, then they heard someone's testimony. They heard Bartimaeus. You ever wonder why Bartimaeus' name is even given? I have no doubt it's because he became part of the early church, and he testified, no doubt, regularly about how he was once blind and how Jesus healed him. And that's how we know the guy, Bartimaeus, because he was like right there, a part of the early church. There were 144,000, and I'm going to suggest that that is a symbolic number, 12 and 12. That is the num- that's the number for the people of God. Thousand is a very common number that just simply means a lot. And so we get this picture of a lot of people in the early church and they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And there's just this beautiful picture of their experience and how they've been kept pure. And God has sealed them. And I'm not going to get into it anymore, but now we discover another group. A little bit of contrast here. The 144,000 apparently could be numbered, but can this new group? It's called the great multitude or a great multitude. They can't be counted. There's a contrast there. Where do they come from? They come from every nation, tribe, language, and people group. That's to be compared with in the previous, well, two chapters before, it says, Jesus, you, you know, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from where? Every tribe and language and people and nation. And so this is John's, or <coughs> <coughs> this is God's way of revealing. This is like representatives of everybody throughout the world. I'm even going to suggest that this, this great multitude includes the 144,000. Now, why would I say that? This great multitude is mentioned only twice in Revelation here and in the end of Revelation, Revelation 19. And in Revelation 19, it says this. After this, that is the prophecy or the destruction, rather, of the... Um, of the whore of Babylon, it says, after this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God and as it continues on, it sounds so much like what we read here in chapter 7. It skips down and it says in verse 6, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting hallelujah, Skipping down to verse 7, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen, by the way, stands for the righteous acts of the saints. I believe this great multitude is not just some people who come out of an end-time tribulation, but it is a tribulation that is throughout the church age. We we did not discover anything in chapter 7 that would hint that this great tribulation is simply reserved for the end times. We're going to have to look at Matthew 24, because that uses the phrase the great tribulation. And then we're going to have to look very briefly at Daniel 9.27 that talks about the abomination of desolation. And people kind of put things together and then read into chapter 7. See, this is a seven-year great tribulation at the end of the age. And I'm going to suggest, I don't think it is. As I look at this, let's, let's look at some of these things here, church. I'm going to get my bearings here. Give me a moment. They're wearing white robes. Interesting, what do the people in Revelation 9... They're wearing fine linen. We'll get to that in just a moment, but white robes. The cool thing about these white robes, guys, is that it says that they have been... They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, last I checked, if you wash something in blood... It doesn't make it turn white. Now, am I mistaken? Have you you discovered this? Actually, I try to get the blood out. But no one wants to get the blood out of this because why? It makes the robes turn white. So these robes are not to be understood as literal robes. They are symbolic of white. They're symbolic of all of your sins being washed away. They are the testimony that your sins have been forgiven completely By Jesus Christ. But what I want us to see here is it says they, this crowd, they washed their robes. And so we see here an emphasis in faith. Because it's faith that then God responds to in washing our sins away. Right, church? And so I want us to understand that this is, in essence, this is the gospel that's been applied to them. They're not martyrs. It doesn't say anything about them dying. They have come out of the great tribulation. But I'm going to suggest this tribulation lasts the entire church age. It's not just, a, it's not just some people in the, that live and are martyred in the last seven years on earth. That, that number, that, those people that could be numbered... But when you're taking the whole church age, that number cannot be that number cannot be num- that number cannot be numbered. I think that's correct. They are participating, we're about to participate in the wedding feast of the Lamb. Why? Because they are portrayed in chapter 19 as wearing fine linen, which represents the righteous acts of the saints. So here we have the white robes. Because they have placed their faith in Jesus and in the blood that has now washed them clean and forgiven them all of their sins. And now the fine linen that we see them wearing instead of the white robe is actually the righteous acts that flow from that faith. And I'm just going to tell you that if you have faith and it's not producing anything in your life, then I'm going to suggest you need to take another look at that faith because genuine faith produces something it produces fruit that's just the nature it that's what it does right faith does it faith works it produces these things and so they're wearing this fine linen the fine linen represents in other words it's a symbol of their righteous acts because as they believed in Jesus and their sins were forgiven, there was something different in their lives. And there's something that's different in your life. If your sins are forgiven, now there's just this compulsion, this desire, this longing to follow Jesus. And to, and to follow him and live as he lived. And so that's why now they're wearing fine linen. Because as they have been washed in the blood of the lamb, they have now followed him and they have done righteous acts. And apart from that cleansing, apart from that nature being changed, apart from that poison of sin that seeps into everything that we do and acts everything, apart from all of that forgiveness, we can't do anything that's like fine linen. Because the Bible says all of our righteousness are as what? Filthy rags. Not fine linen, but in Christ? See, the game changes. And so that's what happened to these people. They're, they're dressed in these white robes. Their sins are forgiven. There's no indication of it in time. There's an indication that, if anything, this number is, it's replete, it's full, it's like, you can't count them. There's just too many. Church, think of everyone throughout the ages standing before the throne. They're like the sand of the sea. You cannot count them. That's how many there are going to be. And, and, and I truly believe that in the end times, it, <clears throat> at least before the end times, when, whenever Christ comes back, that there's going to be the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. There's going to be a, an awakening. There's going to be a fullness of the Gentiles that comes in. It's not the full number. It's not like, okay, that's the last Gentile that can come in. Now all the Jews are going to get saved. That's not what I, don't th- what I think he's talking about there in Romans eleven twenty five. He's suggesting this fullness, this re- end-time revival. It's coming in, and now that it's come in, now... All Israel will be saved. Something is going to happen that is going to ignite this awakening in the Jewish community. And I look forward to that day. All Israel will be saved. Awesome, amazing. It says that they're holding palm branches in their hands. Remember, John wrote this. This word is used only one other time in Scripture, and it happens to be John 12, in which there, this multitude, same Greek word for multitude here, it doesn't say great multitude, but a multitude is now, I'm sorry, actually it does use the phrase great multitude in John 12. And this great multitude is now following Jesus into Jerusalem, and they're taking palm branches and laying them down for who? See, it's for the king. And now here in heaven, John is again painting this picture of all of these people. There's so many of them. Every single one of them have palm branches. I don't know what that's going to be like. I'm not suggesting Jesus is riding in on a white horse or a donkey and they're laying down their palm branches. Man, would that line be long if you couldn't count them. I'm suggesting though that there is this heart of worship and uh, of surrender to him. Palm branches laying down. Hosanna! Blessed be the Blessed be the, the king who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David. This Hosanna means salvation. I'm, that's exactly what they say here. Salvation belongs to our God. So I think John is alluding to something here. Who are these people? They're not just people at the end times. They are throughout the ages. And now they're here gathered. Can you imagine the, the I don't want to say noise, but the... The, the din the uh, the the sound level, the decibel level, as they are worshiping God, oh my goodness you can 't count them i 've been a stadium or, or an arena with forty thousand i 've actually been in one the largest i 've been in in which they were actually singing was close to eighty thousand and man that that was at a promise keeper 's conference. In Jacksonville, and man, that was just that was just loud. As you, there were times in which I would just stop singing and I would listen, and it was like, oh man, amazing. Just caught up in this rapture of worship. Different rapture, by the way. Rapture, <laughs> sorry, of worship. Right, and so then it goes on to, to say that they had come out of the great tribulation. Now. I want to be careful, it doesn't say they had to come out. Because that's what the NIV says, who have come out. It's actually just the present tense. They come out. That is, they come out and they continue to come out. Because that's the power of the, the Greek in the present tense. They come and continue to come out. And progress, they just, it, continuously, they don't come out before this great tribulation. They come out during. No suggestion of martyrdom. We're going to come back to this church and some implications of this. So I better hurry. Sorry, I really need to hurry. What is this great tribulation? Let's turn back now to... uh, Oh, oh, before we do... Right, right, right. I think the mistake that we can make is we we look at this phrase, the great tribulation, and we ask the question, well, does John use it anywhere else? See, he doesn't. So we're kind of at a loss here. But I'm going to suggest not really. Let me, let me share something with you. I think that's good um, studentship. Is that a word, studentship? Uh, that's, that's good study skills. When, when you're looking, you want to find an exact phrase and see how it's used elsewhere. But may I suggest you, we don't have to look at a phrase, the great tribulation. For example, in chapter 14, we hear the phrase, the great wine press of God. And later, in chapter four, fifth, 19, chapter 19, is referred to simply as the winepress of God. In chapter 12, we read about the great dragon, but later in that chapter, we just read about the dragon. In chapter 11, we hear about the great city, and later it's called just the city. In chapter 21, we hear about the holy city, and later it's just simply called the city. So I'm going to suggest that the great tribulation, John does refer to it, he just refers to it as the tribulation. And guess what? No examples demonstrate that it happens at the end of the age. For example, in chapter 1, verse 9. I'm going to read that to you. Chapter 1, verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos, etc., etc. He refers to the tribulation. Now, NIV says the suffering, but it's the same Greek word here. This is the tribulation. What tribulation was John going through? Was it an end time tribulation? See, it wasn't. It was a tribulation that not only John went through, but throughout the church age people go through. John is on the island of Patmos because his tradition says they tried to kill him by throwing him in boiling oil and he wouldn't die. And so the emperor said, there's only one way. Domitian, he says, the only one way, I guess we're going to kill this guy. We actually have to exile him to Patmos. That'll teach him. Yeah, so we had this amazing revelation. That right? <laughs> yeah, really slowed his ministry down, didn't it? But the truth is that John went through continual persecution. He was the only one that wasn't martyred. And we actually, re- Jesus predicted this at the last chapter of John's gospel. But when we discover John's persecutions and the trials that he went through those are the very same type of tribulations that the church has always gone through some of them have been martyred the other 11 apostles were John just wasn't so in honest in all honesty he probably went through more tribulation as a result not less But this is the the struggle that he had gone through and in chapter 2 verse 9 we read about another the tribulation and it says it this way. These are the words of him who is the first and the last written to the church in Smyrna who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions. Now it actually is the tribulations of you to, to read it literally. So this is another place where we find the tribulations. But This isn't end times. Actually, he goes on to say, I know the slander of those who say they're Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and that will give you the crown of life. See, church, in this tribulation, the tribulation throughout the church age, there is martyrdom, there is death. People counted the cost. That's what Luke 14, Jesus said, count the cost to be my disciple. If you're not willing to give up everything for me, please don't, because my disciple is characterized by that way. In church, it's a lifelong process of just yielding, yet we stepped into the saying it's all yours and then I guess throughout our Christian life we have second thoughts but we have to continually lay it down because it becomes a stumbling block to us. But everything belongs to him. We lay it all down for him including our life. In, in Revelation, excuse me, Hebrews 11 it says and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. Later, it was all on the line. Church, that's the way we need to live. My life is not for me to live and do whatever I want because Mike Curtis died at age 14. And he was resurrected in Christ not to now live his own life, his own way and what he wants, but everything belongs to Jesus. Christ lives in me the hope of glory. It's all about him, not about me. And I tell you what, me wants a lot more comfort in my life, a lot more success, a lot more of this and a lot more of that. But Jesus has said, Mike, I'm sorry. Do you belong to me or do you belong to you, who is your master? Because you can't serve two masters. Okay. And every day, church, when you face trials you have to ask that same question who's my master who is really running my life and so as we turn now to Matthew 24 excuse me as we turn I'm sorry I said Matthew 24 didn't go to go to Luke 21 Luke 21 Matthew Mark and Luke they're called synoptic gospels that That means there's a lot of stories that are similar, or the same story, but told from just a little bit of a different perspective, okay? And as we read this story, this is Jesus at the sharing, at the same moment that Matthew 24 records. He says not one stone will remain on the other and the disciples ask, well when would this be and when is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so he's answering these questions and I just want you to follow with me because the first paragraph I'm going to read to you is about 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem. The second paragraph I'm going to read to you and I'll let you know when I'm changed, at least in the NIV, it, it, they separated into paragraphs. If your Bible doesn't, I'll let you know when we're transitioning in that paragraph. And that ha- does have to do with the very end of the age. Okay, so what Luke does, excuse me, what Matthew, okay, what Luke does is he takes a paragraph about the destruction of Jerusalem, then another paragraph about Jesus' second coming. Matthew does this. And so there's some overlap. So here's, here's what Luke says. Are you ready? When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that it's desolation Is near Matthew, Jesus uses the phrase, the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke about. Then let those who are in the Judea flee to the mountains, let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Josephus tells us that this happened. As a matter of fact, he said how many? There were uh, 97,000 taken prisoners into all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Transition moving now to the end times there will be signs in the sun moon and stars on the earth nations will be in in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea men will faint from terror apprehensive of what is coming on the world not israel the world for the heavenly bodies will be shaken at that time that is the time of verse 25 and 26 not the preceding verses, but at that time, verses 25 and 26, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus is coming back. Ah. And so, what I want us to see here is... Number one, that what he just writes about, about the city of Jerusalem being surrounded, that was fulfilled in 78 day. That was fulfilled in 78 day. There's no inclination that it's going to be fulfilled later. Now, remember, and, and, and I just don't have time to get into all of this, but Luke separates them. Matthew overlaps them. If you want to know what of Matthew 24 was fulfilled in 70 AD and what was fulfill, is supposed to be fulfilled at Jesus' second coming, read Luke because he separates them. When did the abomination of desolation happen? According to Luke, it happened in 70 AD, not to be repeated. Why would I say it's not to be repeated? In Matthew 24, 21, this is what it says. The great tribulation will be unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. So here's my thought. If this is fulfilled, this abomination of desolation, if it is fulfilled in the end times, is Jesus right in saying that it will never be equaled again? No, no, Jesus, actually, it will be equaled one more time in the future, in the end of the age. But Jesus says it won't. It won't. The abomination of desolation, that great tribulation, the tribulation of 70 AD will never happen again. It will never be equaled again. There's not a second fulfillment. One time. Luke shows us, he puts it in that paragraph that's all about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and separates it from the second coming. Okay? So when we talk about this idea of the abomination of desolation, And many would say, well, I think it's going to be fulfilled in the future. See, Luke and Matthew don't permit us to see it that way. It will never be equaled again. Luke puts it in that chapter specifically fulfilled in 70 AD and not the second coming of Jesus. And you can do that. You can do the homework, go go through. See if that's not true, church. Be good Bereans. That first paragraph that I read to you from Luke 21, that is about 70 AD, and it's not about the, the end times. It's the second chapter. That's the second paragraph. That's about the end. And so, another thing I want us to point out is that it says in in that paragraph, that first paragraph of Luke twenty-one, right right there, verse twenty-two. Do you see that it says, "For this is the time of punishment." For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. See, you could go to Zechariah 13, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was predicted there. Other chapters that talk about it. Not as clearly, but it talks about it. Can I ask you, if this did refer to the end times, why would God be punishing Israel when all Israel just got saved? Why would he do that? See, Jesus already predicted two chapters earlier in chapter 19 of Luke. He said that the Gentiles will lay siege ramps against Jerusalem and will destroy you because you did not recognize today what would bring you peace. You rejected the Messiah. Your punishment will be the 70 AD destruction and that is what he is predicting here. That's the punishment. Why would God want to punish an end-time nation that has suddenly influxed into the kingdom of God? All Israel will be saved. See, I'm suggesting he's not, and that this is specific to 78 day. Verse 24, they will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all nations. This actually happened I mentioned 97,000. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles. Until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And I'm not going to claim I know exactly what that is. Uh, People give their guesses. The time of the Gentiles, because it's not referred to anywhere else. Maybe hinted at, I would suggest. But not directly talked about. And I'm just going to suggest from 70 AD until Jesus comes back. That is the time of the Gentiles. It wasn't before That was the time for the Jews. Now is the time for the Gentiles. And at the very end of the age, the time for the Jews once again. As their jealousy is stirred up and all Israel is saved. This is an, that that then would suggest an end times revival or awakening. But this inaugurates that time. The 70 AD and the trampling of the Gentiles. Jerusalem was never rebuilt like that before. The temple never rebuilt rebuilt. In 139 they tried to do it but the Romans crushed it scattered all of their efforts, destroyed it couldn't do it. And so I'm going to suggest why would he talking, be talking about an end times, time of the Gentiles that started in 70 AD? Yeah, I, I struggle with that and so I believe that he is just talking about 70 AD here that was, 70 AD is What was the the desolation uh, of uh, the abomination that causes desolation? Now Daniel nine twenty seven, and I've got to be so quick with this church because actually my time is up, and I and I I I I do have other stuff I want to share, so I'm gonna yes, I'm gonna just wrap it up um, in in getting into these end time things because I want us to focus on this idea of tribulation. So just be patient with me. Verse twenty seven, Daniel. 9.27. This is where the phrase the seven-year tribulation comes from. It's found in only one passage. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. That is, if one seven is seven literal years, this is where the seven years comes from. In the middle of the seven, doesn't say three and a half, but that might be implied, but in the middle of the seven or the seven years, he will excuse me, put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. I'm going to suggest to you that this is the abomination of desolation. That Matthew 24 says, Jesus said, hey, you remember the abomination of desolation that Daniel wrote about? That's what I'm talking about here. That's this right here. This was fulfilled in seventy eight days. I'm going to suggest that we don't need to be looking for a temple that's going to be built that's not going to indicate Jesus is coming back. We're going to look at another passage in 2 Thessalonians 2 when we're talking about the beast or the man of lawlessness. We're going to talk about that later, not tonight. But I'm going to suggest to you that Scripture, when it talks about this great tribulation... John is just giving us this picture of all of the tribulation throughout the church age. Now, I do believe that the seven bowls of wrath are specific to the, the end of the age. And we're going to look at that in the, either next week or the week after. But the vast majority of revelation is not about the end times. It's about where you and I live, church. And every day we live in tribulation. We face it to some degree. Follow me. This, this is an amazing, I, I just I love this verse. And, and you may not know right away, but this this is what it says. You ready? Really short, it says in Psalm 18:34, it says, He trains my hands for war. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. Doesn't that just bring you to your knees in repentance, church? Doesn't that just minister so much? Let me just unwrap that a little bit. He is is talking about physically, but we know that he is talking about training my hands for war beyond physical war because of the very next line. Have any of you had the privilege of bending a bow of bronze? Any of you? A bow of bronze? No? Okay. If you ever find one, good luck! good luck, you're not going to be able to do it. And that's the whole point of this. He, he helps me bend a bow of bronze. See, that bow of bronze, that's like strong. But I can bend it. Because I'm not just engaged in a physical battle. I am engaged every day in a spiritual battle. And when I engage in it, God, throughout my life, has been training my hands for that war. Not just a physical war, but spiritual warfare. He's training your hands, church, for warfare. In Judges 3, it says the generation grew up and and, and God had to bring them into warfare to train them how to do war. God, throughout your life, is going to teach you warfare. If your life is easy, if you're coasting along and things are just great and you've never encountered problems, I'm wondering if, you're just simply, if it's simply because you're sitting on the fence. Because you will encounter struggles and trials because they are the things that God will empower you for so that you can do the impossible like bending a bow of bronze. In spiritual warfare, he will empower you to overcome And it's going to be hard. But that's how we trained you. People who go to lift weights at the gym, do they go because lifting weights is really easy? I mean, I guess if they're lifting five-pound weights, you know, they can do that all day. And some people need to do that just for that simple exercise. Like when I first hurt my shoulder, man, was I wimpy when it came to going to the gym. But you put on the weights and you grunt. And you make it hard because that's how you get stronger. Church, if life is easy, you're not going to grow. Is, is that a disappointment? And, and I'm, I'm telling I don't like it when it's hard. But here's my confession. I need it to be hard. I don't want some of the hard, okay? But God still takes me through some of that. I'll take some of this right here, but he gives us the hard to train our hands for battle, for war. So that when the really hard times come and your faith is strong, it's like you're bending that bow of bronze. I can't tell you how many times in my business, church, I've been working on it and it's like, it's not happening. I, I am at a, I, I have to make this right. A customer is, when a customer is going to be looking at this bumper this, that I'm taking care of, he's going to be scrutinizing it and looking at it, and it's nowhere close to that. And God, I need your help. I'm having a problem with my base or my clear coat or whatever problem I'm running against. The weather, Church, I've had issues where the weather was just blowing around so hard, it was definitely going to blow garbage into my bumper. Because you spray that clear coat, it's like, it's like flypaper, church. If there's a speck of dust a mile away, it will call it and it will find its way to my bumper. And so consequently, I, and as the wind is blowing, I have to do this bumper. The customer needs it. I've got to put the clear coat on. And so I just say, God, I'm about to do something that if, this, if the wind keeps blowing like this, I'm done for. And I'm going to just have to say, I did the best I could. And you just bring it back, and I'll redo it, which means hours more of work. And I remember one day in particular, and I'm just saying, God, and it was just going on for half an hour or more. It was getting ready to storm, and you know what that's like, the wind blowing. I said, God, I have to do this. I need you right now. To do something, I pointed my car away from the wind as best I could, but the problem is the wind comes around, so that might help a little bit. But God, you've got to, I'm doing what I can. You've got to do the rest. When I started spraying that clear, until it dried enough, there was no wind. No wind, church. I had times in which it was sprinkling rain, sprinkling rain. It was like, God, I've got to do this bumper. It has to stop sprinkling. And I just started spraying. It had stopped. And I was just waiting. So just kind of waiting for that drip of of water on me. And okay. And that one time. And I did the whole bumper. And I pulled it under the overhang. And within seconds, it started downpouring. Church, When you are up against what you feel to be the impossible, that's when God says, let me show you how strong I am. I'm going to empower you so that you can bend a bow of bronze. Which, by the way, if you've ever read the book, The Bronze Bow, it comes from this. This, I can't remember the guy's name, but the Romans had betrayed him and done so many things, and he became so embittered with the Romans, and he realized that the real battle that he was fighting wasn't against the Romans, but against his own bitterness, and Jesus had to heal him and set him free from his bitterness, and he, that's when he realized he could even then, at that moment, bend a bow of bronze you can as well. You're going to face tribulation, church. You're going to feel as if this is too hard. But by the way, God doesn't give us anything that's too hard for us to do. Because when he empowers us, we can Oh, he gives you stuff that's too hard for you in your flesh to do, like all the time. But is it too hard for you in Christ? See, it's not. Not ever. I'm just going to ask you, what are you struggling with? Are you struggling with an illness? Are you struggling with a, a job situation? Are you struggling with a marriage situation or any type of relationship, a job? What are you struggling with? What is your great tribulation that you're going through? Because John went through it. The, the Smyrnians, I think that's how you pronounce their name. That's who they're, the guys from Smyrna, they went through it. You and I go through it. And I'm just going to tell you, church, when you learn to rely upon him, and then when you learn to praise him, because it says right here in the very next, well, the next page... It says in verse 46, the Lord lives, praise be to the rock, exalted be God my Savior. Then he says, therefore I will praise you among the nations, O Lord. I will sing praises to your name. Praise always is in the midst of tribulation, always in the midst of battle and warfare. Why? Because it's praise that basically says, God, you can do this. I can't, but you can do this. This is who you are, highly exalted, strong enough. You train my hands for words. You're going to empower me right now to be able to walk through the fire, walk through this river that's not going to sweep me away. You are now going to empower me to do this, God. And we step into it in faith. We lean into it and we find the grace. Church, I can't tell you. As soon as I take that step and I can feel scared to death as I'm stepping into doing something that is on my flesh, I can't do it. I know I can't but greater is he who is in me, right? As soon as I take that step, that's when the grace starts coming. Don't wait for the grace to show up and then exercise faith. Lean into it. Step into it. And that's when God pours out his grace. That's what he's looking for, church. That's what he's inviting you into. He's inviting you into this life in which, yes, there's great tribulation. But oh, let God show you moment by moment how very strong and how merciful and gracious he is as he empowers you in all things. Church, can you stand with me?